Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, we were just waiting for our fifth uh, panel member, and um, I'm delighted to welcome you all here tonight, and also uh, particularly David and I are very pleased that uh, Steve Robson and Gillian Tett and John McFall have all agreed to come and offer a, a commentary on some of the issues that we've raised uh, in this book. Um, the book that we have launched, um, obviously, as anyone uh, here who has written books, and many of you have, know, um, is not something that we wrote uh, in the last month. Um, and essentially, we started on this project at the beginning of 2007, uh, when it's probably fair to say that David and I knew little about subprime mortgages, um, and we were rather pleased that we knew so little about them. Uh, so this, I think we could not say, is a book about the credit crunch or the response to it, although, in fact, we think that many of the points that we are making and things we are recommending are, in practice, quite relevant. And when the trouble started to hit, we looked back at what we had said to see if we looked completely idiotic uh, or not. Um, and we did find that in the beginning of the book where we talk about the ways in which financial markets have changed and where we make the general point that the regulatory system has not kept pace with the changes in financial markets, we point out that new instruments have emerged which make it possible to transfer risk of all kinds on a far larger scale and in more complex ways, not solely through standardised exchange-traded derivatives, but through an almost infinite range of bespoke over-the-counter arrangements, CDOs, synthetic CDOs and the like. In some cases, banks hold them in off-balance sheet vehicles. While these instruments make it possible to lay off risk over a vastly greater range of risk bearers, they also mean that when risks crystallise, they may well have an impact in hitherto unfamiliar places anywhere in the globe. They may make it easier to ride through small crises, but large ones will have many more dimensions of which we currently have no knowledge. Well, um, we think that was reasonable uh, in the circumstances, and of course we've all acquired rather a lot more knowledge in the last few months of quite what happens when these instruments go uh, AWOL. Now, all I'm going to do, and David will follow me briefly, before we get the three commentators, is just to give you an idea of what we attempt to cover uh, in this book. Um, partly, I would say, this, is, this was a kind of educational exercise, perhaps appropriate for the LSE, where we discovered that there was really no text that you could look to which described how the regulatory system internationally was supposed to work. Um, and I discovered that when I was delivering lectures on seminars here. So we thought initially that we would try to fill that gap, but fill it uh, in a way that was slightly unusual perhaps, because which reflected a kind of insider perspective. And I think that uh, David and I have probably been in almost all of these committees or organisations one way or another. I remember when we launched the FSA, and David became head of international <coughs> affairs there, and I asked him to produce a schedule of all of the international bodies that the FSA was a member of. And after going away and coming back about a week later, he said, well, I've got to 75. Uh, can I stop? 
Uh, and undoubtedly, during the five years we were there, that number doubled, uh, I would say. So what we've done in this book is attempt, uh, quite straightforwardly, um, to describe um, what the objectives of regulation are, uh, to describe how the system has been designed insofar as it has been designed, and of course it's to some extent an accidental structure at the moment, uh, to focus some attention on what the World Bank and the IMF currently do in financial regulation, which is quite different from what they did in the past. That business has grown uh, quite uh, surprisingly over the last few years. Uh, the European Union we describe as a special case, which is a kind of polite way of putting it, um, and David will talk a bit about that in a moment. We look at regulatory structures in individual countries and indeed the debate on how you structure regulation, uh, which is remarkably fraught, uh, and there's a kind of global controlled experiment uh, underway um, whereby if you look at the way people structure themselves, roughly 50 countries now have integrated regulators on the kind of FSA model. Roughly 50 countries have traditional three-pillar structures with the central bank doing banking, uh, a kind of SEC doing securities, and perhaps a ministry or a separate insurance commission doing insurance. And then another 40 or so countries have a variety of hybrids with combinations of these things. And you might think uh, that at some point people would look at this experiment and say, what have we learned from it? and are there models that work better than other models but there's no real sign of that happening at the moment and then lastly we talk about the need for reform and I will focus just on that last bit uh, this evening and those who want the details of all of the rest uh, can look at the book itself essentially we point out that the system is inordinately complicated uh, and this is a very simplified view uh, which um, deliberately excludes quite a lot of organisations and doesn't properly uh, convey the intricacies of the relationships between them. But you have the G7 governments who, as far as anyone's in the lead, are there. The Financial Stability Forum, which was inserted into the middle of this picture in 1999, but which has struggled to describe or to carve out a role for itself and struggled to acquire legitimacy over the last few years, partly because the Americans didn't particularly want it to have, although they may be changing their view now. The three uh, main pillars of banking, securities and insurance, which have a separate arm called the Joint Forum, which is now rather confusingly described. And then you have the central banks over here with the Committee on the Global Financial System and the Payments and Settlements Committee uh, sitting sort of inside the uh, BIS, and then a whole new um, infrastructure of regulators dealing with auditing and accounting, which have all really been created uh, in the last seven or eight years. So this has grown like uh, topsy. That's the big uh, picture, and indeed, if you look below um, each of these individual boxes, you'll find something like this. Uh, this is IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, which has an incontinent number of working groups and standing committees which are supposed to sort out market transparency and rules on investment management, etc. And you can imagine one of those charts underneath each of the boxes on the main chart. <coughs> so this is an inordinately complicated system at present. 
And in the book, we try to describe the problems. First of all, and I probably don't need to insist on this point, having shown you those two charts, it's overcomplicated with obscure, as we say, relationships between these bodies. It's not at all clear who is really controlling the system. There is a lack of leadership. The G7 finance ministers who might provide such leadership tend to involve themselves in regulatory issues only uh, episodically. It's much more exciting to talk about uh, economic growth and the role of the rise of China than it is to talk about how to achieve some greater rationale to regulatory uh, bodies. And so only intermittently do they involve themselves, usually in response to a crisis. The last time the G7 did anything significant was after the Asian financial crisis when it introduced the Financial Stability Forum. Maybe, and this is perhaps an optimistic point, we are at a point where there is a chance of some leadership being exercised in response to the latest crisis. Uh, there is a big issue now and a growing issue of legitimacy. The Basel Committee has 13 members, 10 of whom are from Europe. Um, Luxembourg and Belgium are full members of the Basel Committee and fully engaged in setting global banking standards. China is not. Uh, India is not. Uh, Australia is not. Uh, this is, I think, quite unsustainable and is a significant problem in that if you are not, and big countries like China are not engaged in the process of setting standards, then it's perhaps not surprising that they aren't quite as enthusiastically committed to meeting them as you might like. So there is a big question of legitimacy. Another issue in that category is Islamic finance. Uh, the Basel Capital Accord paid no attention to Islamic finance until the end. Um, when that was quite difficult to then re-engineer it uh, to suit the needs of banks not paying interest. There are, is confused accountability. The G10 governors oversee the Basel Committee. Uh, more than half of the G10 governors are now not, in fact, responsible for banking supervision in their own countries, but they are overseeing the Banking Supervision Committee, which sets the rules uh, globally. Uh, and um, this is of a a problem of a slightly different category, rather relevant at the moment, uh, because of all of the different bodies involved, uh, including the IMF and the World Bank and the Financial Stability Forum, they all produce a kind of cacophony of warnings and analyses. They all produce their own financial stability report, which makes points about asset bubbles and uh, vulnerabilities, etc. But I think there's so much of this uh, that it's very difficult for a coherent view about what is going on in financial markets to emerge. Too many warnings and too little action. So we suggest some solutions. We think, first of all, there should be a simplification exercise and that that should be led by the Financial Stability Forum. We think there are some of these bodies that could simply go away. Uh, others, the Joint Forum, for example, could usefully be an arm of the Financial Stability Forum, but it makes no sense for it not to have a relationship uh, with it. We think the G7 should commission such a simplification uh, exercise. We think the FSF should be renamed a Financial Stability Council. Well, you may say that doesn't in itself mean a lot, but I think it would give a signal that it was the place where the coordination exercise should occur. Why are we bulls of the Financial Stability Forum as it now is? 
Well, because it does at least group the finance ministries, the central banks, and the regulators in one place. And there isn't anywhere else where that happens. So we think it should have a strengthened secretariat. We think it should be able to impose some direction on the individual committees and regulatory members. And we think it should be the coordinating place for an assessment of the vulnerabilities and the stability of uh, financial markets. Um, and that we should try to reduce this uh, confusing noise uh, in the system of everybody thinking that they've got to warn about everything all of the time. Uh, we think that the committee structures need to be significantly revised uh, to bring in China, India, uh, an Islamic country, at least one, um, and a corresponding reduction in EU membership. Uh, this will not be popular in Europe, but it is absurd that as the European single market has grown into more of a single market, so the numbers of European members on all of these committees have grown. Uh, because the prize for having the ECB is that you add the ECB but you never take anybody else away. And so the Europe has simply got to acknowledge, I think, uh, that it has to be more coordinated in its representation. And these committees really do need to be broadened out. And this is, if you like, a financial regulation version of the Security Council problem. Now, saying that, of course, um, implies that it's probably insoluble since the Security Council problem seems to be. Uh, but we think perhaps it's more manageable uh, in the financial area. We think it would make sense for all these secretariats to be consolidated in Basel. At the moment, Basel Committee is in Basel, the insurance regulator is in Basel, and IOSCO has its secretariat in Madrid. There's no logic to that, no sense to it whatsoever. Uh, and if you had a coordinated secretariat, you would have a proper kind of think tank looking at these issues globally in one place. You need new accountability arrangements for the Basel uh, committee which bring together central banks and supervisors. The central banks have been extraordinarily protective of their turf in Basel and that really makes no sense uh, in the future. It hasn't made sense for some time now. We think there needs to be a group that does oversee hedge funds and private equity. There is increasing overlap between the activities of hedge funds and private equity firms which are essentially unregulated and the activities of regulated institutions and this is increasingly uncomfortable. It doesn't make sense to impose the same kind of prudential requirements on hedge funds and private equity firms we think uh, but it does make sense to have some group which is looking at that sector of the market on a global scale. Looking at it individually is very very tricky because if you try to increase your regulatory grip on hedge funds in one jurisdiction they'll go somewhere else uh, and therefore you need to do this uh, at a global level. Implicitly, there is such a group sort of in existence already. The Financial Stability Forum has commissioned reviews of highly leveraged institutions in the past, but there isn't a kind of standing place where that's looked at. And lastly, um, and here we trample into uh, particular nation territory, but regulatory reform in the US would help a lot uh, because one of the problems of leadership and coordination is that in the country which is inevitably the leading player in financial markets, there is no sensible coordination there either. There are goodness knows how many regulators in the US. I counted about 75, uh, 78, I think I worked out at one point, opposite numbers when I was chairman of the FSA uh, in the US. And the absence of a US federal insurance regulator 
the absence of really consolidated supervision of the investment banks, uh, the SEC has never wanted to do that and doesn't do it effectively, uh, is a major problem of achieving global uh, coordination and global oversight uh, of these firms. So a key element in achieving a global regulatory system which matches the nature of global financial markets is consolidation in the US. Now, Paulson uh, thinks the same and has produced a report um, which is quite far-reaching in its implications, which has immediately produced lots of turf war reactions from US regulators, and it won't immediately be implemented. But this debate has now been opened up in a big way because you have the unusual situation of the US Treasury saying our own regulatory system is a mess. And that's a very vulnerable position for the US to be in. So something uh, has got to happen in that area. So at the global level, um, those are our main recommendations. And David will now, before we ask the other three to comment, uh, will comment on the European side. The bit I've done is the simple bit. So why is the uh, European side a special case? Um, you will see immediately the chart is quite different. The other chart was a sort of spider's web and by and large circular. Here we've got lots of lines, um, hierarchy. Uh, and the reason we've got these lines of hierarchy is that everything that Howard has been talking about is purely informal. Uh, arrangements entered into voluntarily non-binding in all these groups that we've been talking about earlier. Here, lots of this is compulsory and hard-coded into treaty legislation uh, set by the Commission, Council and Parliament up to the top there with committees of legislators um, covering all kinds of different subjects as you can see there and uh, committees of supervisors um, undertaking supervision and assisting the legislators and the way off at the bottom and disconnected um, is the um, European Central Bank and uh, the role that and its interests in, uh, in supervision and, and financial stability um, so how did we get to, uh, to all of this um, what we've tried to do in, in, in the book and I uh, won't even attempt to summarise that here is look back a long way to the beginning of the single market and to, to look into the future as to where we think uh, things might be, might be going um, but the, there is a, an extraordinary a patchwork here of um, objectives, ideals motivations of different players um, the project can roughly be described as creating a single market and financial services uh, in Europe uh, there are a lot of people involved in this uh, there are the financial firms themselves by and large uh, they, uh, those who are ambitious uh, will want to expand their business across border uh, increase volumes get rid of costs of regulation in uh, 27, 29 jurisdictions um, and make more money the users of financial services uh, will by and large uh, want the uh, counterpart of this they will want it all to cost less um, and they will, um, they will want to 
the rationalization that's possible uh, within a single market to make financial services firms much more efficient so that savers can earn more and uh, borrowers can pay less. Governments have, uh, uh, politicians I've said here, but governments are sort of rather caught in the middle because on the one hand, they would quite like uh, the um, uh, financial services sector to assist uh, the real economy uh, to function more effectively by offering uh, cheaper, better, more widely available services. But at the same time, they would quite like to have a very profitable financial services centre in their capital. These may not be reconcilable. Uh, the regulators are caught up a little bit in the, in the, same, uh, in the same game. I mean, they uh, have the various mandates to uh, um, uh, integrate uh, the supervision cross-border, uh, but at the same time, if integration goes too far, uh, there may not be any service, financial services firms or stock exchange to regulate in their jurisdiction, which obviously is a bit of a sort of job challenge. So, so there are winners and losers in, uh, in this, uh, even with the, within the financial services firms. Uh, big firms uh, can see lots of mileage in this. Uh, small firms uh, who work in a local, uh, uh, purely local market do not want to have all their rules changed every few minutes in order to uh, enable big firms to sell uh, services across border to places that they're not interested in. The result of that is that there have never really been any agreed objectives for the single market. Nowhere will you find written down what the uh, objectives are, uh, other than sort of slightly eccentrically uh, uh, in a piece of um, work uh, produced under the auspices of the Corporation of London a, a few years ago, who, when people got a bit worried there wasn't an objective, thought it would be quite good to try and write it down. But that objective has no status and has never been endorsed. Um, so there are various different things that have been going on at different times. Removing barriers to activities in other states. Um, not just going beyond removing barriers, providing a level playing field. So not only you could go to the other uh, member state, but you would compete on more or less even terms. Um, all the way through to, to having identical rules for the same kind of business everywhere. Uh, the argument is particularly strong for that within the Eurozone in an in economic sense. Uh, only if the rules are identical uh, for the same kinds of business are you really going to get the, uh, the bang for your buck. Oh, no, perhaps not quite the right expression. Um, but you get the benefits of the, of the Euro. So there's a patchwork of initiatives covering a whole range of subjects, banking, securities, insurance, clearing and settlement, corporate governance, auditing, uh, and so on. Um, there is uneven implementation. Uh, this is partly deliberate because the legislation very often um, creates a, uh, an apparent rule but which is uh, capable of interpretation uh, in, according to the the desire of the local jurisdiction and a lot of effort has been uh, uh, put into uh, crafting language that will uh, mean two different or more different things and I see my former colleague uh, Jane Welch uh, up at the back who uh, 
knows very well how uh, all these processes were, uh, were conducted or, and still are. Um, there's a patchwork of regulators, um, very different uh, structures in different jurisdictions, just as there are at the global level. There's a prolifer proliferation of committees because underneath all of those ones in the previous chart, um, you will uh, find uh, clusters of committees like the one that we had under IOSCO. So there'll be sort of half a dozen attached to, certainly to each one of these ones at the, uh, at the bottom. Um, and lastly, there is, um, and we come back to this uh, uh, crisis management field, there is uncertainty about what happens uh, in a crisis. This is not a European problem, it's a, it's a global problem, um, but because of the rest of the structure it is supposed to be homogenous, uh, nevertheless there's an expectation that if something goes wrong cross-border, um, uh, this will need to be sorted out uh, effectively in the EU. Um, so what to do about all of this? Um, when we finished this last summer, there was a sense that maybe a much broader stock take should be undertaken uh, to work out what we were all trying to do. Um, but the fact that um, this proposal for stock take was proposed by the French uh, caused some kind of um, allergy to thinking more deeply about this, uh, and uh, no stock take really took place. Um, but a number of um, different uh, initiatives uh, have been taken forward, all of them very sensible in their own right, all of them moving in the, in the direction of um, greater convergence. Uh, the difficulty is that nobody knows what convergence means. Everybody's in favor of it, but it, it means lots of different things. One of the things that we propose is that um, the term should be um, uh, removed from use uh, and that every time people are thinking about what to do next, they should decide uh, whether what they mean is absolutely identical in form and implementation. Uh, and this is what you need if you're going to make um, uh, IT work across border. Making it, uh, making regulation and supervision not quite as different does nothing at all uh, for, for IT. It has to be exactly the same. Uh, and there's been a lot of call from the, from the big uh, banks uh, for getting as much as possible as can be identical in form um, and implementation of the same, like common reporting. Uh, you might think that uh, if all, all supervisors were looking at the same things that in, in all these jurisdictions, you know, perhaps they, the, the firm should fill in the same forms. But this does not take place and is unlikely to happen for a, uh, for a long time. Um, Maybe it should be just identical in outcome, and the reason you would want this is in order to make sure that the, there is a level playing field. Um, uh, but you don't need to have identical arrangements to deliver that. There may be all kinds of local circumstances which mean that having the identical in form isn't necessary, um, uh, and you don't, you, don't, you don't need that. There may be other areas where sort of roughly the same is good enough um, and that um, trying to push through convergence 
um, on a one-size-fits-all basis really doesn't, doesn't help. Um, and uh, it's very important to identify which those cases are. So, so we think that that discipline should be applied right across all the different strands in the, in the project. Um, the next main area of, uh, of thinking is that we think that over time there will be more centralization uh, in supervision, partly because of the, the pressures to make more things the same. Um, a number of different approaches have been adopted to, uh, to this. Um, within the supervisory world, there is a very sensible uh, urge to create supervisory colleges across jurisdictions to make sure that supervision is conducted sensibly. Uh, but those colleges also need to see whether supervision can be the same. Um, but in different, um, uh, in different colleges, uh, there may be completely different approaches. They, those approaches will need to be looked at together um, and they, it, we will need to see whether identical rules and identical supervisory practices can be uh, allowed. We think that this means that there will need to be some kind of authority uh, uh, determining when and where uh, rules can be the same, should be the same, and enforcing them. This is not the same as having uh, a single legislative authority. It's not the same as ha having a single enforcement authority. It only applies where things really need to be the same. Um, lastly, um, we come back to the issues of financial stability and cross-border insolvency. Uh, the term college is slightly unfortunate because it first came into use in the supervisory world in the context of BCCI. This was a college that didn't work very well um, and it also uh, revealed, the failure of BCCI revealed uh, that uh, when a firm did collapse, all kinds of difficulties arose in, uh, in resolving uh, uh, insolvency. That position has not changed. It's not a European issue. It's a global issue. Um, but the way addressing that is clearly important. Um, and uh, work is underway in the EU to seek to address that. It needs to be advanced uh, much more rapidly so that uh, if there is a cross-border insolvency, uh, on a Friday night, um, or, or actually it's Friday morning, I see Michael Foote there who knows that crises always uh, announce to the authorities around about lunchtime on Friday and the solution has to be ready by Monday morning. We don't want people to say, oh, we th never thought this could happen. Those are our okay. proposals. Thank you, David. Well, we're now going to have three commentators and we're going to go strictly in alphabetical order. Um, so uh, John McFall, chairman of the Treasury Select Committee, uh, who has been... Uh, perhaps willingly, perhaps unwillingly, dragged into regulation rather more than he might have hoped over the last few years. Um, John. I thank you very much, uh, Howard. Uh, can I first of all thank you for the invitation, congratulate you and David and your book, but I think more particularly given that the book was written last year, the timing of publication is superb <laughs> coming out at this time. The Treasury Select Committee has been involved in two major inquiries in the past number of months. First of all, the run on the rock which we published, but secondly, the Financial Stability and Transparency <coughs> Report, 
which is equally relevant and the inquiry in that will be going on for quite a time. But what did we find, maybe if I could just summarise, in terms of the tri-party arrangement here, there was a clear lack of leadership. Every one of the tripartite authorities who came before the committee, when we asked them if they did their job, they said yes. So why did we get ourselves into that mess? When I asked the Governor of the Bank of England who was in charge, he said, could you define that? So I thought it was quite simple. If somebody's in charge, they're in charge. If you're not in charge, they're not in charge. So a clear lack of leadership. As a result, the Select Committee didn't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater in getting rid of the tripartite arrangement, but we recommended the establishment of a post of Deputy Governor of the Bank of England and Head of Financial Stability, who would be one of the major advisors to the Chancellor. And at our Treasury Committee hearing on Tuesday, I specifically asked the Governor of the Bank for his views on our proposals, if it should be seriously considered by the Government, which is not intending to do that at the moment, and he gave an affirmative response to that question, saying perhaps the Deputy Governor shouldn't be on the MPC, but it is worthy of consideration. So how do we get that leadership? How do we get that grit into the system? We recommended banking regulation should adopt a US-style prompt corrective action approach, and the new office should empower us to collect information on banks, including full access to their accounts, make judgments on whether banks are in distress, and act to lessen the potential impact of that distress. A new special resolution regime is necessary to take control of failing banks, protect financial stability and the interests of small depositors, and return the bank to the private sector eventually. It will not, however, stop banks failing, and we shouldn't do that. And we should also have a new pre-funded deposit protection scheme. It shouldn't currently cover more than the 35,000, which is in existence at the moment, which already covers 96% of savers, but should be indexed to inflation. And it should pay out customers within a few days of a bank failing. Howard mentioned international dimension. The key weaknesses we've seen in the financial system exposed to the market turbulence are a collective failure of the international financial system. The emergency warning systems failed. Many market participants failing in the basic task of due diligence. Gaps in the design or implementation of risk management frameworks and procedures in many financial institutions. Concerns about the ability of some boards to understand and monitor the business as well as the institution's true exposure to risk. I'm reminded of a question I put to the non-executive director of Northern Rock who was in charge of the risk committee when I asked him that given that Northern Rock, a small institution comparatively, was responsible for 19% of all new mortgages lending in the first half of 2007, did he ask the question why they were doing so well? They didn't do so well, and I think it was a failure of non-executive directors. There's also the skewed incentive structures within the firms, which appear to have encouraged aggressive risk-taking. And again, the Governor, in his appearance before the committee on Tuesday, made that very clear, and that was covered in the newspapers yesterday. One conclusion I've come to is that prudential regulation will always be one step behind financial innovation. And I accept that the originate and distribute banking model has provided 
some advantages, the trade advantages in the financial markets. But there is an issue of risk here. One of the questions I asked, simple question, for the past three years, when the deputy the governor of the Bank of England and others came before us, saying, where is the risk in this system? And we were told the originate and distribute model was a great model because you can slice and dice and pass all the risk, and it's a way, and there isn't any problems. And we've now got banks having the risk and maybe never having got rid of the risk in the first place. So there has to be changes to the originate and distribute model without throwing it out. Also the failure of the credit rating agencies, inherent in multiple conflicts of interest in their business model. And they were also demonstrating to us a slowness in adjusting to the ratings and the models. And we'd invest in over-reliance on the credit rating agencies. <coughs> and at the end of the day, I think investors equated complexity with security. We had the complexity and the lack of transparency of many structured <coughs> products. Despite the reporting in the press this morning of the Bank of England comments about the worst being over, I certainly don't think that is the case. And uh, I think the financial sector is still unaware of the full extent of losses in the banking sector. And we will see more write-downs as we go. So I'm more gloomy than the front page of the Financial Times illustrated this morning. But maybe Gillian's got a comment on that. Uh, and we also saw difficulties as well as a failure of the regulated authorities to act as a restraining influence on the banks. The Bank of England and the FSA came before the committee and said, we sent out warnings to the banks about liquidity, but nothing happened to those warnings. It went into the ether. So we have to do something to provide muscle again. One of the lessons I got from my visit to Washington in December was that the Fed, even though there's this overlapping regulatory system, and we would not want to replicate it, however, as you know, the Fed would li was listened to in that, and the institutions here are not listened to. So how do we get them listened to by the banks? But the reforms to the international financial system, are they needed? Of course, because the status quo is untenable. And I think that market turbulence could be now be having an impact on the real economy. Is it a regulatory response as opposed to best practice? I think there's a role for both. And a regulator should encourage best practice in the industry. But the big question for me is, can the banking sector put its own house in order? I'm reminded of the words of Joseph Ackerman, the chairman of Deutsche Bank, when he said in the Financial Times on the 27th of January, I no longer believe in the self-healing power of the markets. Well, if that's the case, the politicians are here to stay. So how do the politicians react? We don't have a knee-jerk reaction, which they had to Sarbanes-Oxley. We've not had that in the political environment here. Uh, there is, shouldn't be an overly detailed prescriptive regulation, but the banking sector must engage with the need for reform. And I look forward to Newsnight or some other programme in the next couple of weeks when it's not a politician I'm talking about, it, but it's not Howard Davis. It's a chief executive of one of the banks, and they have not engaged in the debate to date. I mean, after the special £50 million uh, that was given by the Bank of England, you never saw a chief executive for Hyder here. So we really need to engage with the banks. If the banks are sincere in saying they want to sort out their own house here. So the policy reforms, the future originate distribute model, we need that. And uh, Basel II, we need to strengthen Basel II. We don't need to overturn it. I welcome the financial stability reform proposals to raise Basel II capital requirement for certain complex structured credit products. 
And there is a case that's been mentioned by the FDIC and others for introducing a counter-cycle element for Basel II. What about the changes in bank behaviour? We need greater focus with the banks on risk management. Every crisis has got to do with underpricing risk. That's what it's about. So we need greater focus on that. And we need the banks to look at the incentive structures and whether the remuneration structures within firms need to be changed. And again, the governor was very, very clear on that when he came before the committee. Why should the banking sector be the only area where you get the same whether you succeed or whether you fail? When you walk away and you've got security for yourself, your family and your grandchildren. That's a system that needs changed. And there also has to be an improvement and convergence of financial reporting standards for off-balance sheet vehicles and greater transparency and information for investors. I've mentioned the credit rating agencies. They need to change dramatically to re-establish trust and confidence in the market participants. And heeding the warnings, I think at an international level, Howard, the IMF should take on this role. In many ways, the IMF has lost its way since it was established in the 1940s and with the biggest crisis in terms of the macroeconomic global imbalances. But the IMF, and I've told the IMF this, they're not to be seen on that issue. So they need to get their act together to change and we need to ensure that market participants act on warnings. As far as the regulatory authorities, particularly in this country, is concerned, I think there are important questions about the capacity of regulators to monitor and supervise complex financial institutions. Even in Northern Rock, we were told with the FSA's own inquiry, they had seven meetings with Northern Rock at one stage, five of which were by telephone, none of which were minuted. Now, I suggest that if you were the convener of your local sports club, you would probably lose your position at the next EGM. But here we have the Financial Services Authority, which is supposed to be supervising a high-impact firm. And does the FSA have sufficient expertise and experience with their staff? Can they compete with the banks for their talent? Is it the case that if you work for the FSA, you can work out the Canary Wharf on a Friday and get 10 times your salary on the Monday with a bank? If that's the case, then we've got to look seriously so that we get that equilibrium between the regulator and between the banks. I often say welcome Hector Sands, 100 new recruits that he's got. On the European dimension, I've spoken about this, particularly to David Wright, the Deputy Governor of International Financial Markets. ECOFIN has announced a programme of work around financial stability and the priorities there include promoting transparency and security markets, improving data and improving information. Now, the EU tell me they're currently examining credit rating agencies. No decisions made yet, but regulation in their opinion not ruled out. But the question David asked at the end, can the European Union cope with the failure of a major systemic cross-border bank crisis? What we did in our committee deliberations is we visited Sweden to look at their system because in the 19, early 1990s their banks went belly up and they didn't suffer from a liquidity crisis as other institutions suffer. So they learned something as a result of that. But what left me with the greatest impression in my Swedish visit was that the Swedish authorities were telling us that they're responsible, well, they own 90% of the Baltic state banks. Now, given the Baltic states and their fiscal position, if they go belly up, are the Swedish taxpayers 
responsible for that. So maybe one of the blessings, I don't know if you can call it a blessing, is that we didn't have that cross-border issue. And one other lesson I got from Swedish experiences, despite the crisis they had in the 1990s, uh, they do not have adequate legislation in place to deal with failing banks. So there is a real need to engage at a European level as well as at an international level with the United States. And lastly, I'll finish on this non-contentious point. The Professor Buter and others advocate a single European regulator. David has mentioned that. I would put it gently and say the political consensus for that bold step is currently missing. But we're whistling in the wind if we think that we're going to get to that stage. So we've got to work together as politicians, as regulators, as financial institutions in getting something done. But there's a number of voices being heard at the moment. The banking sector and financial institution voice has been silent. My plea to them tonight is let them not be shy, let them speak up so that we can get a market solution to this thing and we do not have a heavily regulated response to it. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Um, we're going to go to Steve Robson now. Um, in the uh, early years of this century, when markets were calm, everything was running smoothly, Steve and I were two-thirds of the tripartite agreement. Uh, there's probably no relationship between those two facts. Um, but he's now on the Financial Reporting Council, on the board of RBS, works for Casanova, and has a great perspective on um, these issues from inside and outside the government machine. Steve. Well, thanks uh, very much, Howard. Um, I, I, one thing I think we've missed so far this evening is a sort of a clear statement of what the rules of the game of this encounter are. And, of course, the, prey, the main rule is to sell the book. <laughs> so there's a little incentive uh, here. Every time the good book gets a good mention, uh, Howard has to pass a fiver to David. <laughs> uh, now, these fivers all get put into a fund and in the days when we were both on the tripartite committee, that fund was a fund dedicated to buying a new striker for Manchester City. <laughs> now, time has passed, and Manchester City has become a well-known money laundering, I'm sorry, reputation laundering <laughs> organisation, and is in absolutely no need of money for buying strikers. So the fund has been reconstituted, and every time the fibre passes tonight, it's going into a fund for a retirement home for Manchester City managers. So every time the good book gets a good mention, something will happen which has previously been thought impossible. A smile will come to the face of Sven Eriksson. <laughs> now, I actually, I mean, everyone's so far had a lot of fun talking about the big issues of the day, you know, the regulatory furniture, the, the uh, credit crunch. I was phoned up a week ago by Howard and said, will you, will you come and do this? It clearly lost a speaker rather short notice. And will you say something about regulation of European financial, re retail financial services? I mean, you know, boring or what? <laughs> um, but sort of picking up part, some of the things that David has said, just I will say a little bit about European retail financial services to show that I kind of do fulfill my remit. Now I might just squeeze in something on the more exciting issues that we're possibly going to be allowed to talk about. But you know, European financial services on the retail side get people, some people, some nerdy people, very excited by the fact that 
European cons retail consumers only buy about 1% of retail financial services on a cross-border basis. And this produces sort of knee-jerk reactions, produces kind of eye big markets, and people who, who are espoused the European project sort of see a spite that somehow people, the, the, the public, aren't behaving properly in, uh, in the light of uh, the opportunities that Europe provides them with. Now, this can be seen as a chicken and egg problem. You are either a chicken or you are an egg. The chicken looks at all this and says, there's not very much activity because of things like culture, language, tax, social welfare systems, and even regulation. And there's not very much we can do about all this, so we shouldn't even try. And that's why the chicken crosses the road to get away from the, re the issue of European financial services on the retail side. The egg, however, is an optimist. And the egg says, with the right regulatory framework, cross-border demand could become much greater, greatly facilitated, and there'll be a wall of money moving between member states. All the egg wants is one more crack at getting the regulation right. Um, now, as the good book makes absolutely clear, there has been a crack at getting this right over the past 10 years called the Financial Services Action Plan, which, as well as looking at the retail services side, was looking at capital markets and at prudential regulation, but was, as David was saying, trying to create a level playing field. And again, as the good book makes quite clear, this didn't succeed because there was no clear focus. The UK, who actually started all this in many ways, thought it was a wholesale markets operation. It was a pro-competition market opening operation. Unfortunately, we never quite managed to persuade anybody else to look at it in that light partly because very few of them had big wholesale markets uh, that might prosper in this world. They had little more than retail financial services, and if uh, these markets were opened up, what might become of their local providers, local employment, and indeed the local regulator? So at the end of all this, uh, a lot of national interest proved far too strong for the UK agenda, and um, really, as far as I can see, the financial services action plan in the retail sector didn't get very far at all. However, don't have to take it from me. My second exhibit in this area was a speech by a Treasury Minister last September. Given I, about nine years after the financial services action plan uh, was set in train. And this speech set out, I quote, principles for opening the European retail financial services market wait a minute, isn't this something we were meant to have done nine years ago and battled to do? So it's pretty clear evidence I'm not alone in thinking it was a, a pretty much a failure. Clearly the Treasury thinks it's a failure at all, uh, sorry, as well. Anyhow, what were these five principles that are now being outlined to, to save the, the world in this area? First of all, uh, the thing should center on, uh, be centered on consumers. Well, yes, it was meant to be last time, but look what happened. Um, it, it should mean that firms have access uh, to retail financial services markets in all states. You know, really, is that ever, you know, isn't that what we're meant to be doing? Uh, that this is not a financial services action plan part two, apparently, but should use flexible tools, uh, national and European competition policy, market-led solutions, national initiatives. I mean, don't those things happen already? Um, it should be based on consistent implementation and enforcement of regulations. I mean, one's starting to have a slight feeling that we're slipping through the looking glass at this point. 
and that it should be based on proper cost-benefit analysis and consultation. By now, we are definitely through the looking glass. The Europe, Europe again, as David has made quite clear, and cost-benefit analysis just don't go together. I mean, clearly it's a plan that has merit, but it just shows how little we've achieved with a decade of grappling with the retail financial services market in Europe through the action plan. Um, if we have to go back to first principles like this now. And is this an agenda really is it realistic today? I think not. Maybe in 10 years' time. Uh, so the chicken's conclusion would be there is a price here, but it's a one that's far away, out of the grasp of this generation. And attempting to get it will make things worse, that the regulation and the costs involved will become more onerous, and the benefits to the customers will be little or none. Um, so it's best not to try and make progress here. We have got other priorities. We've got the, the big picture priorities, which, which John was talking about, and we've also got a domestic priority, which is to fix our own financial services in the retail sector, which Callum has kind of described as broken. So having sort of done my dues and talked about this rather boring subject, uh, can I now talk about the more exciting subject, um, which is the credit crunch. And the thing that strikes me about this is how, there's a, how little people are asking, well, what kind of causes credit crunch in the first place, which you might think will be the good starting point in deciding you know, what our follow-up action should be. I would suggest that there were three causes of the credit crunch. The first was a period of years in which monetary policy was very lax. Uh, secondly, a, a failure uh, to regulate the US mortgage market, which resulted in mis-selling on a monumental scale. Um, and thirdly, a complacent attitude towards risk on the part of both uh, the producers and the buyers of financial products born of several years, actually probably a decade or more, of relatively benign macroeconomic conditions. And if, if you believe anything like that is true, you start to wonder how there could be such a disjoint between that analysis of where the problem came from and the sort of things that people are so keen to talk about in terms of either regulatory structure or regulatory activity. I mean, yes, once you'd got the conflagration going, it threw up some other failings in the system, transparency in reporting standards, incentives, rating agencies, risk management. Yes, those things were all thrown up, but tackling those things won't tackle the possible causes of another event like this, which would be lax monetary policy, um, uh, an opportunity to missell on a major scale. And I would finish by saying that if one, if one looks around now and reads the sorts of things that are coming from commentators uh, in the printed media, on, on television, uh, they are by and large urging monetary authorities around the world to do things which are highly likely to produce another spate of much the same thing. I mean, monetary policy is looking decidedly lax uh, in many countries right now, Money supply in the States is growing at 30% uh, in the last quarter, which isn't bad going even at a time like this. Inflation is, is picking up around the place quite nicely as well. We have got a fundamental problem in that many of these Western economies are highly reliant on the consumer, on consumption, uh, for, their, for their real motor. 
And if we are actually going to rebalance these economies so that they are somewhat risk-reliant and therefore we don't have to rely on debt-fueled consumption to keep our economies going, there's going to have to be a period of rather unpleasant retrenchment and rebalancing of those economies, which will mean that just stoking up uh, the economy through lower interest rates and through more debt uh, will not be uh, seen as the only possible way forward. And it, I think that is, in many ways, the biggest challenge we have right now if we're going to avoid another outing into the world of bubbles is to accept that we are going to suffer a good deal of pain to get rid of the consequences of the last bubble, to rebalance our economies onto a more stable footing. And that is actually the prime way, not regulation, not flapping around with the furniture, actually getting our macroeconomic policy right. Thank you very much. Um, Gillian is what I think of as the FT's war correspondent, uh, really, and that um, she's been focusing on this uh, credit crisis uh, all the way through, and I think many people would regard her as having had a very good war. Um, I'm going to start, but I'm going to make one um, point, Gillian, that I did undertake to um, John that he could get away by quarter two because he has to get a plane to Glasgow. So if he does walk out while you're still speaking, it probably won't be anything you say. It might be, uh, but probably not. Well, I certainly won't take it personally because I realize I'm in a bit of a mug's position here because as the last speaker, not only am I keeping you all from your drinks or your chance to slope off, but I'm also following on from a very eminent group of speakers who have made most of the serious points. So I'm just going to offer a couple of remarks. Um, the first one is drawn from my background, not so much as a journalist, but as an anthropologist, which I used to be before I became a journalist. And as someone who's done cultural anthropology, or anyone will know, what you're trying to do whenever you go into any tribal situation, be it the Himalayas or the City of London, is to have a good look at not so much what people are talking about, but what they're not talking about, to focus on the silences as much as the noise. And certainly a couple of years ago, <clears throat> when I started, or three years ago, and I started writing about this area as a journalist, um, the issue of regulatory structures and the finer details of how these were organized were certainly one of the bigger silences. In fact, notwithstanding the fact that my job is basically to try and um, explain what's going on in finance to FT readers, I would have struggled pretty badly to explain exactly how the regulated structures were set up um, in the financial markets um, or who, who the key players were. So first and foremost, I want to say a very big thank you to Howard and David for producing this incredibly useful book. Um, secondly, I just wish they'd done it a bit earlier because as we struggled to make sense of what all these alphabet soup of organizations were over the last year, we could have done with some handy um, charts or war planning um, maps, if you like. I think the map on page 33 of the um, book is particularly useful in just simply setting down what these bodies are. Um, but when I look at the maps and I read the admirably clear explanation of this area, um, as I listen, if you like, to the noise about what was previously pretty silent. Um, I'm also struck by a sense of wanting to crawl underneath the table and scream 
Because when you look at the map of all the different bodies that now exist, not only is it horrifically complicated, and I would recommend page 33, um, which frankly is not the kind of chart we would ever dare produce in the FT without getting complaints from our editor that it's the kind of thing that makes our readers' heads blow off. Um, and it also makes the structure of a CDO look almost rational. Um, but when I look at that, it's clear to me that just as we talk now about living in a world where banks are not so much too big to fail, but too interconnected to fail, we're also facing a world where the problems are too interconnected to find simple, easy or quick solutions. And it's useful to think perhaps about the parallels with long-term capital management hedge fund um, drama a decade ago in terms of looking at the issue of leadership that a number of speakers have spoken about. Um, when LTCM blew up, effectively a number of banks realized that the way they were dealing with hedge funds as prime brokers was flawed. And the regulators lent on the banks very heavily and told them to get their house in order. And a number of tangible steps were implemented which brought about progress. And it's notable that this time around in the crisis there haven't been a similar series of LTCM type accidents. The problem this time around is that it's not just one LTCM, it's numerous institutions. And I would slightly disagree with the previous speaker and say that to a certain extent the regulatory structures and the complexities of them um, are something which needs to be reconsidered alongside the way that banks have acted. And the problem is that it's much easier for regulators to tell banks to get the house in order than for regulators to tell regulators to get the house in order. And one hopes that politicians like John McFall are going to be wise enough to push forward reform. But that remains to be seen, whether we're going to actually see a collective, coherent process of self-healing. So that's the bad news. The good news is that we do now have noise where there was previously a lot of silence. We do have a number of very sensible suggestions from David and Howard about how to take the debate forward. And I wish the regulators the very best of luck in making sense of these proposals. And I wish them the very best of luck in actually implementing them. And I'm heartily glad that I'm just a commentator and not someone who actually has to put into practice because it's certainly going to be a big challenge. Thank you. Um, we'll, we'll take a few uh, comments and questions. We have a few minutes. And John, you just dash out and you know, the door over there will let you out if that's, if that's all right. But, and thanks very much for coming. Um, we've got one or two um, microphones. And so we're happy to take um, comments or questions. Yeah, one down there. Well, right. One in front and then down behind. Let's take, take those two together and then. I think Gillian answered my question about uh, what would be the next step. Uh, because you have produced a very good book. Okay. What about now? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go straight forward to my question then. Uh, what about the regulation over the rating agencies? Are you including that in your book? 
are you planning to do maybe a volume two, or how are you going to influence that? Uh, well, perhaps I, uh, we, we do talk about rating agencies in the book, not at great length, um, but we do. Uh, I think that um, my view about what needs to be done is that, in the first place, I am quite concerned about the reliance on ratings, which is embedded in Basel II. And I personally think that they, the ratings are too hardwired into Basel II um, because I don't think that they can bear the weight uh, that is uh, envisaged for them in Basel II. Uh, so I think that that needs to be uh, rethought. And secondly, I think the rating agencies themselves uh, need to accept, and I think they more or less now have accepted, and this is a recommendation from the Financial Stability Forum, which I agree with, that they need a different scale for securitizations. It's quite clear that securitizations behave quite differently at times of liquidity stress, and that to call a AAA securitization AAA and by analogy the same as a government bond uh, on the same rating scale is clearly misleading. Uh, so I think that needs to be done. And thirdly, I think that the rating agencies have to accept that there is a kind of regulatory dimension to what they do, which needs to be more heavily insulated from their commercial interests than it currently is. And the analogy I would use is with a um, stock markets, because it, although we've now changed it in this country, but most parts of the world, stock markets are regulators in the sense of controlling the quality of listed companies coming onto their exchange. But also, of course, they have a commercial interest in maximizing the number of listed entities on their exchange. And so the way that was typically dealt with, there'd be some kind of regulatory board which would guarantee the integrity of the listing process and ensure that people could say no, even though it was in the exchange's commercial interest to accept uh, slightly doubtful companies onto the exchange. And I think the rating agencies have not yet convinced people that there is that kind of separation between the integrity of what they do in analysis of a company or a securitization and giving a rating uh, and their commercial interest. And I think they need to achieve that sort of separation and it probably needs to be uh, structurally done, I think. And I'm not, they're not currently prepared to go that far, I think, but I think they will need to if they want to rebuild market confidence. Uh, Robert Wade, LSE. Um, Howard said that um, the G7 should take the lead and that on committees sponsored by the G7, uh, China, India, Brazil, and so on should be invited to participate. Do you think that is going to be acceptable to China and India rather than have them sit at the top table? Um, and secondly, over-the-counter derivatives, uh, do you think that they should be brought within the regulatory net, and if so, how? John, do you want to comment on the well, actually, just the last yeah. point. I think the G7 is an anachronism, and I think... Uh, you know, China and India and whatever, they take it as an insult. You know, let's get real with these countries. What's the biggest thing facing us in the next few years? It's globalization. It's how we complement the things we do in the UK with these burgeoning economies in China and India. So we should be looking to the G20 
rather than the G7. Uh, and that, that's the first thing. And look, look at how the Asian economies uh, reacted after the 1990s crisis. You know, they've done their own thing. Uh, they've not gone back to the IMF for their loans. The IMF loan book is now uh, almost non-existent because they paid it off because we didn't treat them properly. So there has to be a sort of political reappraisal here in terms of how we go with, the, with that. And on the credit rating agencies, I would support what Howard has said there, but we just have three credit rating agencies. And I will remember a former chief executive of the FSA coming before my committee, Mr Howard Davis, and complaining about the three big auditors, you know, and the problems that that's going to. So why don't we get a market solution to this and increase the market, whether it's the auditors or the CRAs? That's what we need to do. Can I leave you with that, Howard? <coughs> sure. Thanks very much, John. I mean, as far as OTC derivatives are concerned, I mean, I think what's fruitful there is that the reconstitution of the counterparty risk, counterparty management policy group, a group not designed by a marketing person because you can't actually pronounce the acronym, but which is looking at the ways in which you can standardise some of these contracts um, in a way of bringing them on exchange, which I think actually many of the firms would quite like to happen. Uh, because one of the big problems in this market has been a lack of liquidity in some of these instruments and partly that's because of a, a lack of a straightforward basis for pricing and a lack of uh, settlement arrangements for them. So I think there will be uh, a trend towards greater standardization of these contracts uh, because it's in the market's interest and I think that Corrigan's group is likely to come out with something along those lines. Well, I mean, just so, I mean, I'm not... not quite sure about that in the sense that one of the reasons OTC, people like OTC contracts is that the margins on them are much bigger than on exchange traded contracts so there's a very strong incentive not to move them all onto the exchanges where they will commoditize and the margins will come down people like Morgan Stanley are suffer badly uh, well if you can't get any price uh, you might prefer some price uh, and I think um, in some cases uh, that's the problem at the moment. Yeah, but there's a question about do you know, do, do you sculpt solutions because of a particular circumstance or do you sculpt solutions because they have enduring value? Well, that's what, that's what the Sorry, I said uh, there's a question of whether you sculpt solutions because they meet the particular problem of today or because they have enduring value. Uh, in the middle, over yeah, woman in blue, and then you can. Well, I'll start off by saying that my own view is there's a very unfortunate conflation between the Northern Rock debacle and the credit crunch. I do think they're analytically separate uh, uh, inquiries, but um, given that the UK regulators have always maintain that they do not um, aspire to a zero failure regime and given that Northern Rock is neither too big nor too interconnected to fail the question and it was originally meant for John McFall is why wasn't Northern Rock permitted to fail? Steve? 
<coughs> well, not that it wasn't fitted to fail, basically because we don't have a sufficiently uh, satisfactory deposit protection scheme in the end, nor a, a, a way in which you could sort of take the depositors away from the shareholders, effectively. My own view of either, you know, how we got in the circumstances we got into was because um, at a critical moment in the thing, the Bank of England decided that moral hazard was much, much more important than trying to protect uh, depositors or the uh, system. Um, and then suddenly found that that was an unsustainable position. And the very interesting thing to me is that the FSA have produced you know, quite a thorough and thoughtful and self-critical report on their own activities uh, over the past year or so. Um, it is strange that the Bank of England have apparently been under no pressure whatsoever to produce a similar report themselves. You have a supporter, fact two. <laughs> Something's going badly wrong if I've got supporters. <laughs> I didn't know you had so many brothers, but... <laughs> In red there, yeah. Linda Korsha, um, is this, uh, isn't this not a, a missed opportunity to raise the issue of an international, international tax regime? It seems to me that it's a, uh, if we're looking at a fresh look at objectives, certainly with one set of objectives, uh, an inter international tax would fit very well, though you might have others in mind. Hmm. Um, the, the short answer is that uh, we did think about tax and I think you will find somewhere a sentence saying that we thought about it and decided not to uh, proceed further um, but I, I, I mean the question has a, has a real point in that uh, it may very well be that you could have construct all kinds of perfectly level playing fields uh, in the regulatory uh, sphere um, uh, but find that actually this really had very little consequence uh, because what was driving behavior, whether by the firms or by, by consumers, um, was, actually, um, was actually tax considerations. Um, and we do touch on that uh, in a number of points. And, uh, and of course, um, I mean, Steve, in talking about the, uh, the retail market, uh, could have made quite a bit more about... Um, the obstacles that tax differences in tax regime and lack of cooperation between <coughs> tax regimes constitute in themselves, um, which really mean that uh, spending time on sorting out you know, level playing fields on the retail front uh, may not make uh, a lot of sense. So it, it certainly um, is in substance uh, part, of the, uh, part of the subject, but I'm afraid it's one that we weren't really brave enough to address. No. I mean, we, we do address it also in the context of offshore centres yeah. uh, to some degree, where uh, I'm afraid we're pretty intolerant of the tolerance given to offshore centres uh, who operate uh, doubtful regulatory regimes, and I can't quite understand why the major countries are prepared to allow them to, to do that. Um, sorry, there were one. Yeah, uh, that's right. <coughs> There seems to be a clear asymmetry between the internationalization of banks and the internationalization of the regulators responsible for them. And I think we've seen over the last few decades a globalization of the banking structure that hasn't really been seen since the early part of the last century. When the great 
crash happened, uh, what did the American authorities do? They said, well, actually, the banking structure is too complicated for us to understand. We're going to have the Glass-Steagall Act, and we're going to separate out the clever people who do the security stuff and the state banking people, and we have a very segregated series of markets. Now, in the context of deposit insurance, it's not entirely clear to me why, in the future, if a large integrated bank were to fail, not a Northern Rock, but an international bank with branches in the UK, why the UK taxpayer should bail out those depositors if, for example, the reason of its failure was the fact that it had got uh, into a difficulty as a result of proprietary trading. Should there not be a segregation of activities for the purposes only of deposit insurance rather than for depositors to benefit uh, from uh, insurance when they deposit with uh, banks which actually have a much wider range of activities and therefore much wider risk parameters? There's been a lot of discussion in, 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 in different ways about this, uh, about this subject. We've had the Glass-Steagall discussion. Uh, we've had the, the narrow bank discussion. Uh, should um, protected deposits uh, only be available um, for banks that engage in uh, extremely safe business? Um, and I think those, those proposals have been... Uh, being rejected uh, because really the only very safe business you conduct is, is a sort of uh, national savings bank collects deposits from the public and it lends money to the government and you assume that the government will, will pay uh, and I think moving beyond that uh, become, becomes really quite difficult uh, and it certainly means that the, uh, the kind of uh, benefits for customers of um, being able to operate an in integrated service uh, will be lost. So uh, I would say making that kind of separation probably fails a, a, a sort of cost-benefit test. But that, that would be my first answer. We'll take one more, I think. And then, yeah, one down here. <coughs> Hi, can I have a question to Sir Steve? And John McFaul said, <laughs> uh, said the uh, uh, origination distribution mod model in the banking sector uh, needs to be changed. And RBS is one of the biggest originator and distributor in the market. I just wonder what's your view on the current business model? Thanks. I thought he said it was going to, it was, it was okay. I was to, so <laughs> took a slight uh, relief from that. I, I mean, I think, you know, you can't wind the clock back. I mean, this, this is the way that um, a good deal of business is transacted. It is a reasonably efficient way of transacting some uh, business. I mean, clearly it got completely out of hand in, in the mortgage-backed securities area, but that's fundamental because the mortgage market got completely out of hand as well. Um, I personally see nothing uh, particularly wrong in originate and uh, distribute uh, as a model. Like any model, it can be kind of taken to extremes, um, but because it can be taken to extremes doesn't mean it shouldn't be permitted at all. Could I just say also one, th one, one thing, just going back to the point about tax. I mean, I think, I think there are processes in train at the moment which are actually 
inevitably driving countries into narrow and narrower channels about what rates of tax they can levy on quite a lot of economic activity. Uh, if, if we go back to the 70s and 80s, the internationalization of capital markets essentially drove macroeconomic policy, uh, in, certainly in industrialized countries, into very narrow channels indeed. If, if you've got uh, your macro policy, your, your level of borrowing, your level of interest rates, uh, inflation rates out of line, the markets punished you pretty fast. And so everyone gradually got in line. Um, globalization is doing exactly the same thing and is doing it to tax rates and forms of regulation as well. And they're being driven into, a, it's, a, it's a slower process, but you can see it happening, into narrow and narrow channels. You know, you read today Shire Pharmaceuticals is off to Ireland because of tax rates there. Not, not a sort of a, an earth-shattering event in itself, but a kind of straw in the wind that, that this is going on. And taxation of, of mobile factors of production, whether they're companies or investment or individuals, it is going to end up in very narrow channels indeed, and governments are going to lose a lot of discretion in this area. And it's a strange fact that the government of the UK, which talks a lot about globalisation, seems unwilling to recognise this consequence of it. Julian, last word from the anthropologist on originated distributes and the changes that we might see. Gosh. Um, okay, I'll just say this. As someone who is, you know, probably a grumpy Cassandra a lot of the time, I might surprise you by saying that, yes, there are many good things about the originate to distribute model. Um, and you can't uninvent innovation um, any more than you could uninvent the internet um, today. Um, I guess the fundamental problem is that there hasn't been enough oversight of the way that bankers were um, practicing this originate and distribute model, and so it got taken to wild extremes driven by a lot of greed and groupthink. And by saying there wasn't enough oversight, it's not simply a question of the fact that regulators may not have fully understood the consequences of what was going on or may not have been fully able to actually stop it in an effective manner. I mean, it's no good understanding it if you just sit there and mutter it quietly in a bleak language. Um, but much more broadly, um, society as a whole, the political system, um, and consumers hadn't got the foggiest idea of what the bankers were up to with their originate and distribute innovations. And so the fundamental challenge is how do we create more effective oversight in the broadest possible sense? So I would very much hope that your masterly guide for how to report on this war or this aspect of the war will help us all. And the media is as much part of that system of oversight as anyone else. Thank you. Well, I guess the big difference between the internet and originated distribute is that uh, Al Gore didn't invent one of them. Um, so we're now, uh, thank you very much for coming, particularly thanks to Gillian, uh, Steve, and John in his absence for helping to contribute. Um, we'd be happy to welcome you for a drink in the atrium in the old building opposite. Uh, that means going in the main entrance and turning right, and you'll be even more welcome if you're carrying a copy of the book. Thank you very much. Thank you.